Hello and welcome to the alternate timeline. I am recording this um, in a closet in Portland, um, and so I found a little different. That is why. Um, okay, so we're talking about war today, war robots, and uh, I think I mentioned this on the full episode, but the first cut of the war robots episode was 95 minutes long, so we have a lot to get into today. Um, we usually try to keep the show like around an hour, not too much over an hour, um, and so today we're going to go through all the stuff we wound up cutting from this episode and some ideas that I've been thinking about when it comes to covering this kind of topic and a bunch of other stuff. Um, before we do that, a quick reminder that we are having a wrap party for Flash Forward 1.0 on December 17th at 5 p.m. Pacific. You will get a link in your inbox on the day of um, so that you can go to it. And I do really hope that you can come. Um, I also put a calendar invite thingy in like the newsletter this week if you want to add it to your calendar. Um, a couple of people have asked if it will be recorded and it will not be recorded um, because it's not like a regular Zoom event. Um, there aren't going to be like Zoom speakers or whatever. We're using this sort of online event space called Skittish, which um, it's kind of like playing a video game and it uses spatial audio. So as you kind of wander around the place, the sort of event, the venue, you can talk to people and as you get closer to them, you'll be able to hear them. Um, and so it like doesn't really make, like I can't record it um, because it's kind of like a, it's more like actually being in an event or a party where you would go and talk to people. Um, there may be some like very short speeches type things, and I will try to record those if like me or Julia or any of like the past guests say something um, on the microphone or whatever. I will try to record that, but um, I don't know exactly how that's going to work. So don't hold me to that. I'll do my best, but I can't promise anything. Um, okay, so let's dig in. Let's get into it. We have a lot to do today. Uh, War Robots. So the first thing that we wound up cutting from this episode was the question of just how different autonomous robots like Spot or, you know, other kinds of like robot dogs are from what the military has had in the past. You can make the case, and I think it's compellingly made, that landmines are also a kind of proto-early robot. And I wouldn't call them robot, but it's a machine that makes a lethal decision after the human has set it up. And so the human placing the landmine is making a decision to kill somebody at some point in the future. Or consider homing missiles, for example. When the human fires a guided missile, they are trusting, they're making the decision to trust the guided missile's navigation system to hit the target they want it to hit, and assuming it will be a lawful target of war and the machine is programmed to do it and do it effectively. You can also look at certain kinds of security at borders and see basically very crude war robots in action. South Korea has this system, which is a machine gun, right, on top of a, a robot that, that can be set to an autonomous mode where if anybody enters into the kill zone at the wrong time, it just fires at them, right? And so that's a stationary automatic weapon. It is sort of akin to like a spring gun, which is this sort of picture, this sort of old timey situation where you open a barn door, you're not supposed to be going in the barn and a, and a shotgun's wired to it, right? It is, a, it is a fancy version of that. So this is a big question that we didn't really have time for. Like how different is a drone that is piloted by a person sitting in, say, Arizona from a drone that is automated? In neither situation, the person piloting the drone and the person potentially making a kill decision is on the ground facing sort of in the flesh their supposed opponents. Um, this is something that I talked to Jesse Kirkpatrick about a lot, and you heard him on the episode 
And he wrote this paper in 2013 because in 2013, the U.S. military decided to give medals of courage to drone pilots. And this caused a lot of outrage in the press and even within the military community because some people were kind of like, wait a minute, how is it courageous to sit in an office in Nevada and play basically like a war video game? And there was, you know, there's this the kind of, uh, we're going to give the, you know, achievement unlocked, this kind of PlayStation, you know, level up type of, you know, joystick jockeys, this metal, this isn't, this isn't warfare. And furthermore, uh, drone operators can't display courage. So that's Jesse, who you heard on the episode. I thought that was actually an interesting question. Can they? Um, and so, uh, so the, you know, the, the martial virtues are kind of the, the sort of the, the, um, traits of character that, uh, that, you know, that, that warriors, um, those in the military service members, um, aspire to, to uphold. And one of them being, being courage. Um, and so, so courage is, you know, in the, in, in that kind of, uh, in the context of the, the military and the practice of the profession of arms, um, you know, is, is the willingness to put one's, one's life, um, uh, well-being, psychological, physical health on the line um, in a way that goes kind of above and beyond what we would, you know, normally characterize as, as kind of behavior that is characterized with, with those types of risks. So it's really, you know, it's, it's, and it's changed over time, right? We can think of, you think of the, um, uh, the, the kind of the advent of the machine gun. It was, it was courageous before the, the machine gun, uh, you know, was, came onto, came onto the battlefield to kind of toe the line and, and stand there. That was kind of the, the beacon of courage. You would, you know, you'd point to the, the soldier next to someone and say, you know, that, that dude is really courageous. He's, you know, go, gone over the trench and he's standing there and, you know, not flinching from fire. And, you know, you have the, the machine gun it come as a, you know, a huge technological development. And it became insane to do that, right? You would be mowed down and killed. Um, and and so so there is this sort of evolution over time, but it is the, you know, it is a, a, a concept that has endured, although in, in different ways. And so, you know, so I argue, and I, and I think that, um, and I didn't start out with this position, but I argue that, that those that, uh, that, do operate drones under certain conditions um, can cultivate, display, and um, engage in courageous acts, right? And the reason being is that they they face risk of um, you know they're often they're often not located in the theater of battle. Uh, sometimes they are, um, and and you know so so I think that there is physical risk associated with that. But let's let's say that they're stateside, for example, what many people think of drone operators is, you know, based in, you know, Creech Air Force Base in Nevada, something like that. Um, you know, they face real, real, real psychological risks of PTSD, moral injury, stress and burnout. And that might be a different type of courage than we find with, say, you know, someone that's that's, you know, boots on the ground. But I think it's courage nonetheless. Again, we didn't really have time to unpack this on the episode. And frankly, like, I'm not actually sure how I feel about this because on the one hand, I do not doubt that drone pilots suffer from PTSD. I think that is 100% believable um, in the same way that people working for Facebook doing content moderation and who are seeing kind of the worst parts of the internet. Those people also suffer from PTSD. Just because you're working online doesn't mean you can't have PTSD. But 
At the same time, these drone pilots aren't ingesting random, terrifying information that they had no part in generating, like the people who work at Facebook do. They are sort of like part of creating the conditions that make being a drone pilot stressful, right? So like, how does that factor in? I I don't really know. Um, The other thing Jesse said that I didn't include on this topic, at least, is about this idea that drone pilots are killing people at such a distance that they don't even really know the people that they're shooting, unlike a soldier on the ground might, hypothetically. So on the one hand, right, boots on the ground are going to, um, you know, killing is still very much at a distance. um, And, you know, it's rare that it is that it is sort of up close whites of the eye. and, you know, in battle these days, that's not to say that that doesn't occur. Um, but we have to keep in mind that, that you know, drone operators um, are working, and especially with, you know, the technology is just even the past decade has really, has really you know, has leapfrogged in um, high definition cameras uh, that, that they, so let me, let me say this, let, let me, um, so I think that the difference. I think that the. I think that what some people might overlook is that drone operators um, spend a really, really long time uh, tracking their targets. Uh, you know, witnessing patterns of life. Right, that um, someone might go and drop their kid off uh, at school in the morning. Um, they may then, uh, you know, go to a to a soccer match in the afternoon, and then their bomb making factory in the early evening. And drone operators spend a lot of time, you know, watching these patterns of life and, you know, establishing the, you know, establishing good evidence that that would be that form the basis of the the type of killing or targeting that they'll be engaged in. Furthermore, is the the technological capabilities of drone sensors and cameras is is really is you know, really robust. Um, so, you know, it's high definition cameras, even though these drones are at, you know, tens of thousands of feet that, you know, can, can see someone that is up close and personal in ways that in fact, we may not have with say, uh, you know, say someone that's, um, firing over the horizon on a mortar position, uh, on the field of battle, um, you know, there in person. So I think that those are the, the sort of the two takeaways is that um, we just don't know if, if killing is, is, is easier or not. Um, but what we do know is that it is a different type of experience. Um, and, it, you know, when one in which the, the drone operators are not just kind of, you know, firing off missiles at kind of faceless, nameless people, um, they're watching them for, for days on end, sometimes weeks. Um, in a way that is kind of up close and personal and intimate that that is you know very distinct and different from other types of other types of targeting and killing and war. Again, I'm not like actually sure how I feel about this idea. My gut instinct says that there is still something different about killing from an office, no matter how high resolution that imagery is, right? Um, The studies on this are hard to really parse because most of them are done by the military, so they're not necessarily, uh, let's just say, objective on this question. Um, But yeah, this is a thing that we talked about that I didn't end up including. Um, On a more fun note, we also didn't have time to get into the kind of weird, interesting history of robot dogs. So here's Kelsey Atherton, who you heard on the episode. One of the things I, I really appreciate about writing for popular science is I get to go through the archive all the time. I mean, you could do that anyway. They have it on Google Books. But I go through it all the time because I'm really fascinated for what was happening. And one of the things I found 
was in May 1930, which is called a robot watchdog fights light when or fights when light hits it, which is a wacky little story about a like trade show in Paris where these the security these people had made a machine that if a flashlight hit a sensor in its eyes, it would um, play a record that sounded like barking and it would roll forward and snap a metal jaw, um, which is one, just hilarious in and of itself. And two, it's a security system that depended entirely on the potential burglar having a flashlight and hitting it in the eyes. Um, Extremely goofy. But that was like the closest thing I could find to a like combat war robot for decades. Um, There's other stuff. There were like demonstrations of sort of just kind of the electronic control of mechanical machines with a a pair of robots called Electro and Sparko, which are your like iconic uh, late 40s, 50s, like blocky metal men. Um, There's a bunch of toy robots. There's like Ibo is, I think, the most iconic of those. And so for a while, the idea of like, oh, if we're going to have a robot dog, it should be a way to explain robotics to children. Another thing about dogs that we did not have time for, but that will come up in a future episode about robots, is this kind of interesting way in which animals and robots that look and act like animals have totally different legal rules around them. The other thing I thought about with with, um, respect to animals, and you should talk to Kate about all this, but obviously, um, is sometimes when you do things with animals... It's not treated as subject to regulation, but if you do it the exact literal same thing with um, with uh, with technology, it is. So, for example, if you deliver something with a pigeon, no FAA problem, no fe- you know. But if you deliver it with like a little drone that you buy, of a, all of a sudden the federal government is like deeply interested in what you're doing. Or the other thing is like assistive technology versus an assistive animal. Like you can you can you know people may need augmented reality who are differently abled um, and yet they may go into a space where they're told you're not allowed into this bar because you're a glass hole. You know what I mean? Uh, versus if they had a dog, federal, liar, federal law requires that they be admitted with the animal. You know what I mean? And so it's, it's really interesting when we treat animals and technology differently when they're functionally doing the same thing. Okay, on to the autonomous killing machines that were the focus of the episode. Um, someone on Twitter reminded me that I actually covered this topic really early on when I was a writer at The Atlantic, and I had completely forgotten about it. Um, but I think that in the ethics world, most people would point to a paper in 2007 written by someone named Robert Sparrow, and that really kind of like kickstarted or influenced this conversation. And in that article, Sparrow argues basically six things. Number one, waging war requires that we are able to hold someone morally responsible for the deaths of enemy combatants that we cause, right? So this idea that like you have to be able to hold someone morally responsible for deaths. Number two, neither the programmer of the autonomous war machine or its commanding officer could justly be held morally responsible for the deaths of enemy combatants caused by autonomous weapon systems. This is Robert Sparrow's argument. Number three, we could not justly hold autonomous weapon systems themselves morally responsible for their actions, including the actions uh, that cause death of enemy combatants because they are sort of machines, right? We can't really hold a machine morally responsible. Number four, there are no other plausible candidates for whom we might hold morally responsible the deaths of enemy combatants caused by autonomous weapon systems. So, like, it's not the robot and it's not the programmer or the commanding officer. So, like, it's nobody. 
Number five, therefore, given all of that, there is no one who may be justly held responsible for the deaths of these enemy combatants. Basically saying, if we don't blame the programmer and the commanding officer and we don't blame the robot itself, there is literally no one we can blame. And because in order to wage war ethically, you have to be able to hold someone morally responsible for deaths. Number six, his argument is, therefore, it is impermissible to wage war through the use of autonomous weapon systems. To do so would be, quote, to treat our enemies like vermin, as though they may be exterminated without moral regard at all, end quote. So this is the Sparrow argument. It's quoted in like every paper that you ever read about autonomous weapon systems. Um, And you heard Ryan Jenkins actually quote that last bit, the idea that killing with a robot is to treat the enemy like vermin. And I want to just take a quick detour here because this connects to something that, again, we didn't have time to get into, but I'm really interested in, which is the argument against blinding lasers. So here's how Ryan explained the argument against them. One of the justifications for this is that if you blind a person, you render them, uh, you you incapacitate them for the rest of their life. You render them dependent on other people for their for assistance and for their their um, their livelihood for the rest of their lives, and that's a kind of injury that is unnecessarily uh, harmful and and terrible. Now this argument is a little bit weird to me, frankly, for a couple of reasons. The first is that it strikes me as like pretty ableist, right? The idea that being blinded is this horrific moral injury that renders enemies subhuman somehow. Um, Being blind is not that. (laughs) But also it's just sort of weird to me because we know that just going to war in general disables people, right? From PTSD to amputation to other long-term disabling injuries. So if the argument is that any weapon that forces people to live a disabled life after that combat or war or whatever situation that forces them to potentially be dependent on others in some capacity, that those weapons are all unethical. And if that's true, then like, aren't all weapons and all war unethical? Like, I don't really understand what's going on here. And here's kind of where we get to like the biggest thing that I struggled with on this episode, because um, it's really easy on this topic to get kind of lost in the weeds of these debates, to argue about which weapons are okay and which weapons aren't okay, to talk about kind of the theoretical ethics of this and that and like what should we do. We have to hold someone morally responsible. Here's a six-part argument. Um, But like when you back up for a second – it's worth remembering that war is really just terrible all around. Um, And also that there's like a pretty clear disconnect between some of these theoretical conversations about war and how war is actually fought, right? So like we can sit in a room and debate this. And then when you look at like what's happening on the battlefield, those things aren't always super connected. Ryan Jenkins talked a lot about something called Jus in Bello. That's J-U-S. I kept calling it Jus in Bello, but it's Latin and I was not saying it right. Um, It means just war theory. Just war theory is a long tradition that uh, stretches back to Plato or even earlier. So we're talking 2,500 years or so. And, you know, every while um, the just war tradition has been especially prominent in the Western intellectual tradition, Every culture that has fought wars has grappled internally with the right and the wrong way to fight wars. Uh, No one really thinks that all is fair in love and war. At least they don't think that all is fair in war. They might think that about love. Uh, And so in the just war tradition, 
we find a series of principles that have been refined over the last 2000 years or so that are usually divided into two groups. Uh, usually they're a collection of requirements for declaring war in the first place. So when is it permissible to go to war? And secondly, once you're at war as a nation, what kinds of behaviors are acceptable and what kinds of behaviors are not acceptable? What kinds of weapons and tactics, for example, are morally acceptable? And how are we allowed to treat uh, enemy soldiers and so on? So there's a, a, a very rich tradition, again, that stretches back thousands of years and involves uh, hundreds of, of commentators and contributors. And it stretches all the way up to the modern day where we find a lot of the, the insights and the conclusions of the just war tradition have become codified into international law. But sometimes I personally struggle to see how this just war theory stuff relates to the real world, where there are soldiers torturing people and killing civilians and doing all kinds of things that we supposedly all agree is not acceptable. Um, as one philosopher said uh, about this type of work, um, you know, it's really good if warfare was a peacetime activity, right? It's just so divorced from, you know, it, it's just like totally divorced from what is actually what is actually happening. That's Jesse Kirkpatrick. And here's what Ryan said when I asked him about all of this. That's right. Yeah. And that's that's a tragedy, right? That's unfortunate. We try to close that gap as much as we can. We try to close the gap between the way that people behave and the way that they ought to behave as much as we can. And warfare is no different. So I, I of course, it's true that people don't always act the way that they should. But by thinking about, by puzzling through these kinds of questions, in a relatively comfortable setting, like an air-conditioned classroom, we might come to certain conclusions that we think are important enough, stable enough, that we're confident enough about, that we think, you know, that should really be part of the, the training and the enculturation of the soldiers that we send into battle. If it turns out to be true that we shouldn't kill civilians, then we need to think about ways of training soldiers to avoid doing that and trying to disincentivize it, right? Trying to construct uh, systems that would punish them for doing it, uh, but also preparing them to meet those kinds of situations and do the right thing when they meet those situations. So just because, um, just because uh, war is hell and you find yourself under unimaginable pressures and stresses in the middle of war, it doesn't mean that you're justified in doing just anything. And it doesn't mean that um, there's no value or there's no use in thinking carefully about what a good soldier or what an ideal soldier would do in that situation. Because that kind of, that kind of reflection, it does find its way down into the way that the military operates. And soldiers have a, a very serious uh, code of, of honor, a code of virtue. There are ways that they they tell themselves this is the way that soldiers behave. This is the way that Marines behave, for example. And these are the things that soldiers do. And these are the things that soldiers do not do. And philosophy helps to inform that conversation and those conceptions. Ryan wrote this paper that I think actually kind of illustrates this tension and this struggle. It's called Cyber Warfare as Ideal War. And it argues basically that. Yeah. So this paper was a little bit of a, a kind of philosophical exercise um, I'm trying to give uh, a charitable argument to proponents of cyber war who think that it could help to 
make more make war a little bit more humane and a little bit less destructive. And that's a, that's the kind of project that I think that we can support in general. Wouldn't it be great if war were uh, less violent and less destructive? And so if you think about the nature of war, what is war by definition? A classic definition is that war is an attempt to compel the enemy through the application of force to um, accept our terms or to do something that we want them to do. Okay, so if that's the case, then what would that look like in the best case scenario? What's the, and I think, uh, you know, one way I put it in that chapter is maybe ideal sounds weird, but uh, least morally bad. This is, it's a little bit more clunky, but maybe it's a, a more acceptable phrase. You know, what's the, the least morally bad war we can imagine? Well, it's one where there are no civilian casualties. It's one where the casualties to the, the soldiers on either side are minimal. Uh, it's one basically where the war is uh, won, where we're victorious with the absolute minimal application of force or destruction. And uh, the advent of cyber war provides us a way to accomplish that. Now, it's up to policymakers whether they'll actually seize that opportunity, but at least conceivably, a cyber war could be one where you, um, you're able to compel an enemy to accept some terms of surrender without killing anyone, including civilians, by merely, say, um, incapacitating their fighting forces and uh, inconveniencing them pretty severely. You know, um, uh, turning offline their their GPS or geolocation, um, scrambling their data, the, like their logistics uh, communications, um, turning out the power in their army bases, uh, those sorts of things. A cyber war could um, cyber weapons could accomplish all of those things, and they could make the war victorious. They could they could bring us victory without inflicting the kind of losses that we tend to think of as the necessary consequences of war. And so for that reason, yeah, a war that's conducted entirely in cyberspace gives us um, the opportunity to conduct the morally best kind of war. But again, sure, like in theory, if militaries only ever targeted other military systems with their cyber attacks and never ever targeted civilian networks, I guess that like would theoretically be true, but we know that that is not what happens. Yeah, I think I think a lot of this is to say, yeah, in theory, this is great. Uh, in practice, it's an open question. Like I said, it's up to policymakers to actually use this tool in the ways that would be morally best. Um, and we've we've seen this kind of story before that the advent of um, uh, you know other kinds of technologies were supposed to make war obsolete or they would make war uh, so terrible that no one would dare engage in war, or the, um, the kind of uh, economic entanglements that, that uh, the world had at the turn of the century would make war so costly that no rational country would dare go to war. Oops, World War I breaks out. You know, we've seen this kind of story before, so we should take it with a pretty healthy, um, a healthy dose of skepticism. This also relates to the idea of meaningful human control. There is this argument that floats around the autonomous weapons world that these devices should have what people call, quote, better than human standard. 
One paper by a researcher named Matthew Lee from last year argues this point. He writes, quote, Autonomous military robots should not be used unless and until they are sophisticated enough to uphold the norms of yes in bellow, distinction, proportionality, etc., better than human soldiers do. But what does it mean to uphold these theoretical norms, quote, better than human soldiers do, end quote? Like, we know that many human soldiers are not particularly good at being just and ethical. We know that human soldiers make mistakes and do evil, bad things. So the bar is, like, not that high. (laughs) Um, It's all well and good to argue that these machines should uphold these theoretical norms better than humans do. But to make that argument, shouldn't you have to engage with the fact that humans don't uphold these norms all that well to begin with? Um, And I say this as someone who has a whole lot of active military folks in my family, right? The reason why soldiers behave badly in the field is complicated and fraught and doesn't necessarily even mean that, like, any individual is some sort of evil psychopath, right? It has a lot to do with how soldiers are trained and selected and recruited and how certain infractions are not punished and a whole bunch of other things that we don't have time to get into. Um, But the military might talk a big game about training ethical, just soldiers— while their actual documented behavior in the field does not match those ideas. I don't really have like a cogent analysis here, frankly, which is part of why we did not include this in the episode, but it is something that I struggled with when working on this particular one because like I don't I don't like war, I don't really want to encourage more war, and I'm honestly not 100% convinced that a bunch of intellectuals, and I include myself in this group, pontificating in theory about war is all that useful in getting us to a better future for the folks that war impacts the most. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Uh, it was something I struggled on the episode with to sort of try and balance, like, presenting all these arguments while also reminding people that the reality of war is far messier and more horrific and uh, often more racist than we really acknowledge. Anyway, okay, I don't really have a good transition sentence uh, to move to this next point, so we're just going to move to something else. Um, another thing we did not uh, we did not include, which is a sort of longer breakdown between, um, or a longer breakdown of the analogy between AI and autonomous robots and nuclear power. So here is Ryan Jenkins. I think that there would be a helpful analogy to nuclear weapons here. I mean, nuclear weapons are a great example of a technology that everyone agrees are horrifying and atrocious and atrocious in the sense that to use them is an atrocity. And yet we also are stuck in this position where we think that it would be foolhardy to unilaterally dismantle all of the nuclear weapons that we have. Okay, well, what do we do? Well, this is a classic kind of puzzle of uh, collective action or game theory, you know, political science, uh, what have you, um, of, of trying to figure out how can we keep the world safe and enjoy the deterrent effect that these weapons might have while not risking the destruction of all life on the planet through some kind of human error? Um, And so nuclear weapons are are a kind of similar case of that. Here's a weapon that everyone admits is horrifying, uh, and yet we just can't give it up. It's taken decades of some of the most concerted and persistent protest and collective action that this, the human race has ever engaged in, and we still have enough nuclear weapons to blow up the world several times over. Uh, now, I don't think that this is a this is not a situation worth celebrating. Um, I, I think that if anything, it should make us think more carefully about which weapons we develop, understanding that uh, once the genie's out of the bottle, 
uh, it, it can take decades, you know, or a century to, to put the genie back in. Another thing that we cut was this whole section about the legal liability that exists when war robots come home to the United States and start walking down the street. Um, and that part included this absolutely bananas story. It's one thing to say, hey, we're using drones in the military. And what you're talking about is like some predator bee drone that, you know, or some drone that's capable of staying up in the air for like three days. You know what I mean? Like it's like, you know, incredibly big and powerful. And so um, versus a, the police having some quadricopter to look for kids or, or whatever they're doing with it. But but it's another one. That literal predator bee drone is brought in by like sheriffs to make sure that some cattle thieves like are not armed to shotguns. I mean, that is just so, and, and, and part of the problem there is that it is so asymmetric. The story Ryan is referencing happened in 2011 in North Dakota. One family was accused of stealing six cows from another family. When the local sheriff went to investigate, he says that he was chased away by men with rifles. So naturally, he called the closest Air Force base and asked if they would loan him their $154 million MQ-9 Predator B-drone. They had to ask Homeland Security and they said, hey, we have this situation. But I mean, I just imagine that conversation rose for a minute. You're talking to some local sheriff and they're calling you up saying, hey, so what happened was that somebody stole some cattle and we're trying to figure out whether they might be holding shotguns or not. Could you use your, your military-grade Predator B drone, right, to fly over this area and do reconnaissance for, for us? And to have the Department of Homeland Security say, sure, that sounds reasonable, right, is, is amazing, like, is amazing. More recently, a Predator drone was used to monitor protests in Minneapolis last May. Now, I do have some like ethical discomfort with the idea that there is a huge gap between what is acceptable on a battlefield supposedly far away and what is acceptable at home. But there are some legal differences between those two things. So let's talk a little bit about what if these robots do come back to, say, the United States and then start to hurt people. This is actually what Ryan Kahlo, who you heard on the episode, mainly studies. You know, my my own view is that the most plausible way in which um, harms from, from robots will be addressed is going to be through products liability or strict liability. Products liability, of course, is the idea that if you get hurt by uh, a product and it can be shown that the product could have been safer um, and and had a defect, you know, um, or... or um, uh, was misused in a way that was readily anticipated. You know, th th this is the idea that you could you can recover against the manufacturer of that product. I think a lot of harms from from robots will fall into products liability. Um, alternatively, potentially the idea of strict liability, which is the idea of liability without an establishing fault. And so, if a, if a robot um, uh, that a company made uh, harms somebody in a way that was even sort of remotely predictable. Um, you could you could reach it with with a strict liability, um, and in, in in the past we have applied strict liability in courts where there wasn't great familiarity with the underlying technology, um, and and over time as people adjusted to the technology, um, uh, courts have started to apply a negligence standard um, because it became clear what's the best practice and what's not reasonable. And one example would be hot air balloons. 
Hot air balloons come out. People don't know how to think about them, but stuff's falling out of them and they're landing on people and houses and cows and stuff like, you know what I mean? And so we're like, okay, well, if you're going to have a giant balloon and fly around in it, if you hurt somebody, that's on you. That's strict liability, right? But then over time, what emerges is a professionalization, a greater familiarity, you know what I mean, uh, design practices. And so then we say, okay, now there's a reasonable way to do hot air balloons. And I, I could see a similar trajectory with respect to robotics. But Ryan says that in order to actually have useful robots in the future, we do need to figure out how to encourage people to make stuff and collaborate without foisting an unreasonable amount of financial liability risk onto them, right? You want people to be held accountable for things they do that are dangerous without sort of like making it impossible to try anything new. The two big caveats are, number one, that I think the future of robotics, especially in the United States, is going to be open robotic platforms like Spot from Boston Dynamics, right? Like that dog that also could have an arm attached to it, um, which is nightmare fuel. But anyway, um, if you're designing something like a, a driverless car and it's supposed to get people from one place to the other safely and it fails to do that, a liability is obvious, right? Liability rests in the people that made the car. But if you have an open platform that's capable of doing an arbitrary number of things... And then, and then somebody outside of your control uses it in a way that you don't like. I mean, you make the thing modular, and and you know you 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 don't you don't make your spot so that it's easy to put a gun on it, but you give your your spot an arm, and somebody puts a gun in the hand of that arm. You know what I mean? And then you start to get into this really interesting territory where can a manufacturer of an open tool with many different uses be held? Uh, libel for the myriad uh, applications to which people put it. Um, so, so what I've argued in my own work, for example, there's a paper called Open Robotics where I argue this, is that federal law actually should immunize um, robot manufacturers for what people do with robots, um, assuming that the injury is the result of what the person did as opposed to something about the, about the construction of the robot. And the reason is because absent that kind of assurance, it disincentivizes um, manufacturers of robots from making them open-ended. And it is that very open-ended nature that makes robots so useful. Um, now, that is a far cry from saying that no, you know, obviously manufacturers should be held liable for the harms of the robots cause um, if it's a function of their poor design decision. So, for example, obviously Uber should be responsible for that death in Arizona because they set the threshold wrong for, you know, false uh, positives because their software didn't adequately identify um, the trajectory of someone because they weren't in the crosswalk. I mean, they, because, they, because they turned off some of the safety devices that were in the host car, the Volvo. You know what I mean? Like they did some really, even the, even the Department of Transportation said that they had a lax culture of safety, right? So that's not what I'm talking about. Like you can still hold people responsible for that. You can still hold, you can still hold Boeing responsible for a system that causes the plane to do a nosedive under the wrong conditions. You know what I mean? Um, but it's really the, tr the, the, the open robotic platform where I don't think that they should be responsible for all the myriad innovative uses that people put robots to. 
Ryan also talked about something that is totally unrelated to war, but I thought was so interesting, so I made him tell me about it. So he recently wrote this paper, and I'll link to it in the notes for this bonus podcast, about how government institutions that start to rely really heavily on algorithms might actually wind up undermining their legal right to exist. So, yeah. So, okay. So, um, Danielle Citrin and I, Danielle is, of course, a MacArthur genius, national treasure. treasure. We should assign Secret Service to her. I mean, she, you know, she and I um, uh, wrote this paper. And in the paper, we observed that um, many states are using automation in order to provide basic services. They're, 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 they're doing things that they have been uh, charged to do um, by the legislature. And they're turning around and making, um, you know, usually hiring software developers to try to automate those functions, right? And there's been a lot of writing, including by Danielle, about what happens if an agency um, used to make decisions using people and then commits those decisions over to software and automation and how that... um, uh, violates uh, due process principles because it's hard to challenge and how it, how it violates the participation principles so that because people can't really meaningfully comment on what happens when you try to translate laws uh, in, into code. And these things have all been, have all been written about very ably um, by, by many people. But, but in this new paper, um, uh, The Automated Administrative State, A Crisis of Legitimacy, we actually kind of step back a little bit and ask a fundamental question, which is, why do we even have giant administrative agencies? Why is the world run by these federal bureaucracies, right? Because it's not really in the Constitution. These, these are very much extra-constitutional constructs, the EPA, you know, the FTC. And the way we justify having a giant bureaucracy that handles everything is that um, Congress is not in a position to have the expertise to deal with all the different sectors of a complicated society. And also, because time is limited, they don't have um, the ability to react quickly and dynamically on the ground, right? And so the justification for the administrative state has long been that um, they, they are repositories of expertise and they are nimble. Okay, that's why we have them, even though, you know, it's very clear under the Constitution that lawmaking has been committed to these three branches, you know. Um, And so uh, I don't want to overstate, you know, obviously, there are a few things like the post office or whatever that are actually mentioned in the Constitution, but this giant, giant bureaucracy. So what we observed is that if these trends hold where these agencies who have been committed power by virtue of their expertise and nimbleness if they then take that expertise and nimbleness and throw it away with both hands by recommitting their tasks to software that they neither understand nor can change, not only does that you know, harm due process and, and, and so on, but it undermines the very uh, rationale for having them. It, it undermines their justification. Um, and so what, what we were able to write this paper because of really amazing lawyers who have been challenging automated decision-making, especially at the state level, people like Kevin DeLaban. And we have these transcripts of depositions or, uh, or court uh, proceedings in which 
officials are asked, how does the system work? How could it possibly have done this recommendation? And they say on the record, I have absolutely no idea how it works. And what can you do differently to make sure it doesn't happen again? I just don't know. And so like, <laughs> that is the opposite. You know? And so the idea is that, um, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to um, withdraw contemporary technology from the government. I mean, the government should, um, we should expect the government to use technology where, uh, but, but, but really only in ways that um, enhance its justification and serve its mission, not in ways that delegitimate it. So T- Kevin DeLibon, who he just mentioned, is actually someone who's been on Flash Forward before talking about exactly this. So if you go back to the Can You Sue an Algorithm episode, you'll hear the story of how government institutions using algorithms really messed up a bunch of people's disability benefits to a dangerous degree. Um, and so you can go back and listen to that one if you want to know more about his work. Okay, one last thing that we did not have time for, and this is this question of what happens if the machines on the battlefield or, you know, at home, whatever it is, if these autonomous devices start doing things that nobody expects. Um, And the second issue is that sometimes these robots alone or in combination engage in truly like emergent behavior. Emergent behavior is this phenomenon where sometimes when you get a bunch of beings and they can be robotic or living, um, and you get them together and they start working and doing things, they often will start to do things that you don't necessarily predict. And there is actually kind of a funny story about emergence, if you will indulge me. So Ryan Kahlo and I met many years ago at this event called the Aspen Ideas Festival, which is a whole other story and is a very weird event. But we both spoke um, at uh, sessions for that event, that festival, and that's how we met. And so when we spoke for this episode, he actually told me kind of a funny story. Um, I'll tell you a funny story, Rose, which you can totally cut out, right? But it relates to that very same Aspen Ideas Festival that we met at, right? And so um, I'm in line at the, one of these buffets, okay? And somebody, a really nice guy across from me, I don't know who he is, asked me, what am I working on? And I explain I'm working on robots and I'm working on emergent behavior and, and what that means for the law. And the person's like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I wrote a little something about emergent behavior, you know. And I said, oh, wow, really? And because, you know, emergent behavior. And I look on his name tag around the corner, Stephen Johnson, who wrote Emergence, you know. So I'm like mansplaining emergent behavior to Stephen Johnson at the end. Anyway, um, but, that's, but it's a serious thing because the reason being is that, is that the law, whether or not it's strict liability or negligence, um, the law typically won't hold people responsible for things that are unforeseeable. And so if robots engage in behavior that's truly surprising, um, that's going to that's gonna be a problem for plaintiffs to recover in court. So that's a second issue. Okay, that is everything that we cut from the episode. You can see now why the episode was already very long um, and was extra long at the first cut, but hopefully it's all kind of interesting. Okay, a few housekeeping things. Like I mentioned, I'm recording this under a blanket uh, fort here in a closet in Portland. Um, I am here to help uh, my brother with some medical stuff that I'm not going to get into. But it means that the next episode won't come out next week, uh, the main episode of Flash Forward. It's going to come out the week after. So you're going to get the last two episodes of the last episodes of Flash Forward back to back. Um, Going out with a bang, just doing it all, all at once. 
Um, also, as we start to move into the next stage of Flash Forward, I'm going to be sending out a couple of surveys about what you like, what you don't like, about the rewards that currently exist. We're going to be doing a little bit of massaging of some of the supporting tiers and, and all that stuff. So um, please be on the lookout for that in the new year as I try to figure out what makes sense as we move into kind of like Flash Forward 2.0 stage. Okay, that is all for the bonus podcast this week. I will be back in your ears soon. There, again, won't be a Flash Forward episode next week, but there will be the week after. Um, And then we'll probably combine the bonus episode for the two final episodes of the main show. I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet, but we'll we'll, we'll get there together. Um, 2021 is almost over. It's been a weird year. Um, You're going to get some stuff from me uh, in January around, like, what happened in 2021, what worked, what didn't. I do an annual plan every year, and so you'll see some behind-the-scenes stuff then as I'm kind of like trying to wrap up what I think went well and what I think did not go well this year. Um, I hope you all are having a lovely December and uh, I will be back in your ears soon. Okay, bye.